Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Alexander Agajanian, professor at the Center for the Study of Religion at Russian State University of Humanities in Moscow, and Dr. Scott Kenworthy, who is associate professor in the Department of Comparative Religion and associate of the Russian, East European, and Eurasian program at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. We're discussing their 2021 book, Understanding World Christianity, Russia. Dr. Agajanian and Kenworthy, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, so to start off, um, can you both talk about your research backgrounds and how this book came about? Alex, why don't you start? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I was uh, I was I was doing various research on uh, on the uh, on various aspects of religious life in Russia, um, mostly since the end of the uh, Soviet Union and the post-Soviet developments. Of the religious field, uh, more or less everywhere in uh, in in the post-Soviet space, but mostly in Russia. And Russian Orthodoxy was, of course, at the center of my research since then. And uh, I I published a number of articles of different aspects of that, of of these developments, and uh, uh, a a couple of books. I edited a couple of books on that. So. Uh, now, this this kind of uh, uh, general overview uh, of uh, of of the Russian Orthodoxy as a special tradition was always, uh, uh, you know, in uh, in the scope of my interest. So I I uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy that we um, uh, uh, w- decided to make this this kind of uh, collaborative project with Scott. With uh, with whom we know each other since many years. Yeah, from from my angle, it was uh, somewhat of a funny story. So uh, the series editor, understanding world Christianity, um, Diamond Dorothy, uh wrote to me and said, um, you know, has it 
there's this book, uh, I have this series, and I want to have a volume on Russia. Would you consider doing it? It has more of a contemporary focus to it. And I said, well, actually, uh, you know, I'm more of a historian. The person you should ask if you want the contemporary is is uh, Alex. I got genuine. And he says, well, actually, I did. And, and Alex has written about half the book, but he's gotten bogged down with some other projects too. And so I said, well, maybe we can write the book together. And it turned out that uh, Alex had written um, half, as I said, and the half that remained to be written was exactly the half that would suit me perfectly to write. So that was kind of how the, the project came about. Um, as far as my own background, I, I started out with an undergraduate graduate uh, master's degree in religious studies. Uh, and by the end of that time period, um, you know, with all the kind of revival of orthodoxy in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I got interested in in um, orthodoxy, but there was very little place to study it academically. So I I pursued a master's degree in theology at St. Vladimir Seminary, and then went on to complete my PhD in history at Brandeis University, working with uh, Gregory Fries. Uh, and uh, my first project, my first book was um, kind of looking at the history of the revival of monasticism in modern Russia, so 19th and into the 20th century, uh, using as a case study the famous Trinity St. Sergius, Lavra. Uh, and since then, I've been also working on um, this kind of theological controversy around the, the glorification of the of the divine names, the so-called Imya Slavia. And uh, also right now, I'm working on a book on, uh, it's a biography of Patriarch Tikhon uh, and looking at the Orthodox Church during the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's it's quite clear that your two areas of expertise come together very well for this kind of primer uh, for the orthodox history of orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, so y- you knew each other before, but you hadn't worked together on a project before. Is that right? That's right. But now we're actually uh, co-editing uh, a volume that came out of a conference on on sort of religion in the in the revolution. Uh, so hopefully that'll be. Uh, the manuscript should be finished actually any time now, and then uh, we're going to submit that. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Go ahead right. and keep going. Uh, so this is a very timely book, given that there is an increased interest in Russia and the West um, during the last decade, and we have this discourse around what so-called the new Cold War. And along with this kind of increased interest in the Western media and in Western academia, there come some misconceptions about Russian culture and history. Um, so what are some of those misconceptions that you address um, around the history and practices of Russian Orthodox Christianity? Yeah, I'll... Um start with tackling this question coming from the, the American perspective. Um, and one of the things that, that has always struck me uh, in the sense that I come from two academic worlds, as I said, one is sort of the religious studies and study of Christianity and the kind of emerging field of world Christianity on the one hand and Russian studies on the other, is that um, for people in both fields, uh, there tends to be this... Um, gap in knowledge about Russian orthodoxy. You can read um, histories of Christianity or introductions to world Christianity, and the treatment of Russia usually is uh, reserved to the briefest repetition of cliches. Um, And despite the fact that uh, it's considered the largest 
Christian country in Europe. And according to the Pew Research Forum, it ranks fourth in the number of Christians in the whole world, right? So it should be more at the center of attention, but it it generally has not been. And also with Russian studies in the West, you know, whether it's literature, political science, or history, um, very frequently people are trained without very you know, kind of fundamental grasp in the history and practices and beliefs and so on of, of Russian orthodoxy uh, that's changing. But I think part of the reason this is the case is that there is no kind of, there has never been a, a sort of general work um, to introduce the student or the graduate student or the non-specialist into this. So we really hope that this book kind of um, fills that gap. In terms of sort of popular misconceptions, you know, historically based upon the secular intelligentsia and Western visitors um, who had these kind of orientalizing views of Russia, there was this sort of stereotype of the pre-revolutionary Russian priests as all being alcoholics and, you know, uneducated, ignorant people and, and of the um, peasant believers as uh, effectively being kind of uh, pagan with a, a superficial veneer of Christianity and very superstitious and so on. And uh, <clears throat> these kind of stereotypes have a very long life and, and get repeated very frequently. Um, and of course, are, are you know hardly the case, let's just put it that way, um, which you know re- more recent research has shown. The other one of the other sort of outstanding misconceptions is the idea that the Russian Orthodox Church always serves as kind of the handmaiden of the state, as if the church is um, really just the kind of propaganda arm of uh, the autocratic regime, be that Tsarist or Putin's, uh, you know, historically or contemporary. Um, and uh, you know, added to this today, I think especially. In Western media, there's this kind of portrayal of the Russian Orthodox Church as this bastion of conservative values, uh, especially affecting things like women's rights or gay rights and stuff like this. And of course, this is not uh, entirely untrue, especially with what's happening at the at the contemporary moment, right? And we'll explore some of these things a little later on. Um, but it's important to emphasize that there's a lot of uh, internal diversity within Russian Orthodoxy, and also that these things change over time, right? The relationship between church and state, for example, um, has evolved over time. And so it's misleading to characterize the positions of, you know, I don't know the patriarch or some fundamentalist brotherhood um, as if that uh, therefore tells you about Russian Orthodoxy as a whole, something like this. And just one last point, which is that um, there's also the possibility to uh, sort of overly romanticize uh, Russian Orthodoxy, uh, whether it's, um, you know, as a kind of mystical, spiritual religion, or uh, especially as gaining saliency in some quarters of American conservatives these days, uh, precisely embracing this idea of, of Russian Orthodoxy as this bastion of conservatism, uh, but as something that's a positive rather than a negative. Um, Sarah Recording Shorts is uh, writing about this, and her book will be forthcoming from, from Fordham University Press, something interesting to look at.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something I found in my own research that, as you said, there is this idea that Russia is, or the Russian Orthodox Church is very conservative and they have very particular kind of hardline views on a lot of social issues. Um, and I found that, in fact, um, they take a much more nuanced position on many of these things like marriage, divorce, even abortion than, uh, for example, their Protestant counterparts in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Alex, is there anything you wanted to add? Oh. Well, no, not at this point, yeah. Uh, so one important term that I want to make sure we define for the listeners, right, because there is so, so little up to now kind of information about um, Russian Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy, what do we mean when we say Orthodox or Eastern Christianity? What are some of the um, defining characteristics that are different from, let's say, the, the Protestant or Catholic um, versions of Christianity? Yeah, this is uh, kind of a huge question uh, that could take up a whole podcast in itself, but uh, try to to do it simple. Um, You know, in terms of the basics, uh, we tend to think of Christianity as a quote unquote Western religion by which we associate it with Western Europe and and North America. And this is one of the things that this emerging field of world Christianity is trying to challenge because actually today there are more Christians, for example, in the global South than there are in, in the North or in the West. But at any rate, for the first millennium of Christianity, uh, it was less a a European religion than a Mediterranean one, which is really important to keep in mind, and that its early development uh, was perhaps most rich in places like Asia Minor, what's today Turkey, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, uh, and in some ways, you know, France and England were the the hinterlands of Christianity for, for five or six hundred years. Uh, and the spread of Islam, of course, changed that, especially in uh, uh, Syria and, and North Africa and Egypt and so on, and kind of pushed Christianity uh, further northward. But that happened east as well as west, so into the Slavic world and eventually Russia as much as um, into uh, you know, northern Western Europe. The, the standard date for the split between Western Christianity or Latin or Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and on the one hand, and the Eastern um, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, sometimes it's referred to, uh, is 1054. I will qualify that term Greek. You know, we can speak of Latin Christianity because Latin was the, the, the language of the church, whereas in the Eastern Church, there were always multiple languages. So I think it's more proper to refer to it as Eastern Christianity um, or Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, At any rate, the split which happened in 1054 was in fact a long process that began before and continued afterwards. Uh, I would argue that the largest issue that divided the churches at that point uh, was the question of church authority. So by that point, the highest church authority in the Western church was the Pope. It's kind of centered church authority in the person of the Pope of Rome. Whereas in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the highest church authority, at least when it came to defining issues of doctrine and practice and ecclesiology, were church councils, which kind of represented uh, the whole church coming together. Uh, so individual patriarchs uh, or heads of churches never had the same kind of authority and were always considered potentially fallible as individuals um, in the Eastern tradition. And so this kind of contention over 
um, church authority became a, a real dividing point. By that point, there were also other differences in practice. So the Western church was coming to the point where it was insisting that all clergy be celibate, whereas in the Eastern church, it was normal for uh, parish priests to be married. Uh, the Western church, as I already suggested, was was insisting on Latin as the only language for scripture and worship, whereas the Eastern church always had a plurality of languages from the very beginning, so Coptic in Egypt or Syriac, uh, Armenian and Georgian and so on. And then this tradition continued um, with uh, the Slavs. So you had Cyril and Methodius in the ninth century who created an alphabet uh, for the Slavs when they began to convert to Christianity and then began translating uh, scripture and liturgy into their language, which was, of course, um, enormously important in terms of the common people's ability to understand um, understand their faith. Uh, theological differences, I would say, became more pronounced after the schism even, um, and then even more so after the Protestant Reformation in the West. Uh, as a very broad brushstroke, just to mention a few things of the differences. Uh, one, I think, important point uh, is that uh, Augustine of Hippo, the great North African Latin church father, um, had a huge impact on the development of Western Christianity. His concepts of the fall and original sin, uh, the relationship of grace and free will, uh, after the Protestant Reformation understood in terms of works versus faith, uh, all of these things were really defined by Augustine, so that even Luther and Calvin were going back to, uh, to Augustine and debating these issues. Uh, and the, the Eastern Church simply did not read Augustine he, uh, until much, much later. He had no formative influence. And so all of these issues of the relationship of grace and free will are understood much different, and, and the notion of original sin are understood quite differently uh, in the Eastern Church. And there's more of a, it's a kind of both-and approach, I would say, in the Eastern Church, rather than an either-or one, as you often tend to get uh, in the West. And again, as a very general kind of statement, um, the Western Church always had this ambition to write these kind of comprehensive theology uh, that was sort of theology as a comprehensive rational system that explained everything. Uh, whereas the East always insisted that ultimately God transcends words and, and concepts and human reason, and that the purpose of theology was really to guide the believer to encounter God. So it was more important, the emphasis was to know God in a kind of direct way rather than understand God with, uh, with the reason only. Um, and then the final point I'd make is that the Orthodox Church today is organized quite differently than either the Catholic or Protestant churches. It's simultaneously one church uh, in that um, it shares all the different Orthodox churches share one faith and one liturgy, one creed. Uh, one can take communion, right, as a kind of symbol of the church unity, uh, at least, well, what's happening right now is a special case, but in principle, uh, across the Orthodox churches. Um, but it's also a family of churches in that it consists of a series of 
uh, fully independent national churches. You have the Russian Orthodox Church, the Romanian Orthodox Church, Bulgaria and Serbia and so on, that each have their own patriarch, uh, as well as the ancient patriarchates, uh, such as Constantinople. And, um, and these are fully autonomous in terms of their administration. So the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople is considered the highest ranking bishop in the Orthodox world, uh, but he does not have the authority to kind of intervene into the internal affairs of uh, one of the autocephalous national churches. Uh, so that's very different than the Roman Catholic model. On the one hand, where the Pope has authority in every Catholic church anywhere in the world, but it's also very different than Protestant churches, where there is this sense of of being one church. Maybe the Anglican Communion is somewhat similar, but uh, but as a rule, yeah. Yeah. No, well, a couple of words, if if I may, to um, to 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 add to what Scott have been saying. The uh, one thing is that uh, when we are talking about Eastern Christianity, uh, uh, we also distinguish the uh, uh, so-called Chalcedonian churches of uh, well mm, that some, sometimes commonly called the Greek tradition. Uh, Scott was saying that uh, that's. Uh, 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 about the, this uh, this distinction as well. Uh, so this family of churches. When we are talking about this family of churches, uh, Scott Scott was talking about is uh, we uh, mean the uh, Chalcedonian churches versus uh, as distinguished from some other Oriental so-called Orient ancient Oriental churches that are commonly are also uh, included in the. Um, uh, in uh, in uh, what we call the Eastern Christian traditions, Eastern Christianity. So that's another difference within Eastern Christianity. Um, uh, the um, uh, the churches like the Coptic Church or the Syrian Church or the Armenian Church or uh, uh, Ethiopian uh, are uh, belong to this so-called ancient Oriental. Eastern Christian traditions, as distinguished from uh, from um, from Eastern Orthodox of this uh, Chalcedonian or Byzantine tradition, where the Russian Church belongs as well. So this is one thing, and uh, uh, what Scott was saying about this kind of national and political arrangements of all these churches is uh, really uh, uh, very important because the, uh, it's. Uh, uh, connected to the uh, 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 even not so much the uh, the um, uh, the political uh, 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 the political authorities like uh, let's say after uh, post Reformation Europe when there was this distinction between the Catholic and Protestant uh, national so to speak national ecclesiastic traditions but. Uh, 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 it uh, disappeared in in the Western Christianity uh, uh, later with uh, uh, the historical de- development, while in uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, 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 countries, uh, uh, the, the Orthodoxy, the Orthodox tradition, the religious tradition is very much tied to uh, to the um, national identity. Uh, it's sometimes considered as an endemic. 
uh, to this particular territory, the Russian church with the Russian uh, uh, territory, uh, whatever we mean, we mean by, by, by the Russian territory, by the way, or the Greek church in, uh, with the Greek. So it's very much close to, to the national identity, to the ethnic backgrounds and things like that. And that's very, very much distinguishable as well, uh, even in uh, Orthodox diasporas all over the world, like in, uh, in, in Europe or the United States or elsewhere. Um, yeah, and uh, 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 one comment to what uh, uh, Scott was saying about the, um, uh, uh, the uh, orthodox, the kind of the textual, uh, uh, textual integrity of the, of the Western churches versus something that we call orthopraxy, which is at the center of the uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, uh, we cannot uh, over uh, emphasize or over simplify or exaggerate this, this distinction because, of course, in the Western Church, the Western Church tradition, we also also have this strong mystical tradition with uh, uh, oriented to the direct uh, contact with God. But uh, it's true that the Western tradition is much more logo, logo-centric, more texto-centric, more uh, mm, uh, mm, attached to some kind of uh, uh, clear uh, textual tradition um, uh, and uh, the sacred words than uh, in uh, uh, in the Russian uh, in the in the Eastern Orthodox Eastern Orthodox tradition. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um and again in kind of broad strokes um could you also talk about some distinctive characteristics specifically of the russian orthodox tradition in comparison to the other eastern orthodox churches well i'll, I'll just make uh, one point um i mean ultimately they share more i think than they're different there's obviously differences in terms of language and iconographic styles uh you know, church art and things like this. Uh, I think among the family of Orthodox churches, the Russians have this kind of reputation for being ultra strict. Um, so this in terms of how they relate, for example, to other Christians, they're less open to kind of dialogue as a rule with other Christians than, let's say, um, you know, the Greeks or the Romanians. Um, 
And even this translates today into kind of popular practice. So just anecdotally from personal experience, you know, I, I think for serious church-going Russians today, you know, there's a certain kind of almost way people dress and their physical appearance um, and a sense that, you know, you wouldn't go out drinking with your friends on Saturday night and then go to church on Sunday morning, that somehow those are just ultimately contradictory. Whereas uh, from personal experience in Romania, um, I know that, you know, it was quite common for my my students, I was teaching there in Fulbright, to, um, you know, go out drinking with their friends on Saturday night and go to church on Sunday morning. There was a sense of church being more integrated into people's lives rather than this strictness of of the way things are perceived in uh, in Russia. The consequence being, in this case, that, uh, you know, it's like less than 5% of Russians go to church on a regular basis, whereas, I don't know, some 25 or 30% of Romanians go to church on a regular basis. So it has an impact in the, the popular level. Alex, what more may you say about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, speaking about this, distinctive characteristics of the Russian Orthodox tradition, uh, in addition to some uh, doctrinal or um, some uh, maybe, well, not doctrinal in, in terms of, well, because Eastern Orthodoxy has the kind of uh, common universe, some universal um, uh, uh, doctrines uh, that uh, shared by all the churches, of course. But uh, I, I would say that what, what is really different is a something that is um, explained by the historical tradition, by the historical uh, destiny of this huge territory that uh, has been expanding all the time. Uh, I mean, Russian Empire and the, the imperial tradition that continues and is still there right now. So, and uh, so the Russian Orthodox tradition, comparing to say Greek tradition, Greek or Romanian or some other Orthodox traditions, is at the very same same time a national church related to the kind of national identity of Russians, but also an imperial church, huge imperial church that would uh, uh, include uh, uh, include minorities or ethnic minorities of many kinds, or the Russians that are scattered around this huge territory and being in contact with uh, with uh, other religions, other ethnic groups, other national groups, and and and, and so so in this sense, Russia, Russian, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is unique uh, comparing to other uh, Orthodox churches. Um, let's talk a little bit about historical context. Uh, so, what was the experience of the Russian Orthodox Church and of Russian Orthodox Christians uh, during the Soviet period? So this um, is, uh, yeah, very much uh, crucial for understanding Russia today. Uh, and I would say that there's there tends to be two kind of historical misconceptions. Uh, one is that, especially with the early Soviet period, that the Soviets were trying to establish a, a secular state and have separation of church and state, somewhat maybe similar to the West, and that it was the Orthodox Church that, rejected the Bolsheviks and sort of uh, remained uh, close to the monarchy and therefore operated as some kind of counter-revolutionary agent 
um, which thereby justified the Bolshevik crackdown on the church. This this sort of narrative had a long persistence uh, among people who studied uh, Soviet history, even in the West. And the other kind of common uh, misperception is that uh, per- pertaining more to the late Soviet period is to portray the Orthodox clergy <clears throat> as if they were all KGB agents and, and Cossacks. <clears throat> And I would, you know, these are both issues that really need to be uh, complicated and nuanced. So in terms of the early period, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution was not just about uh, establishing political control. It was really a utopian project of creating a new society, a a new man, a new humanity somehow. And therefore, culture uh, was as important to them as, uh, as politics. So from the beginning, they sought to dismantle the Orthodox Church as an institution, partially to neutralize it because they feared it as a political threat. Although, in fact, the evidence that it uh, was, you know, planning some kind of counter-revolution is uh, is extremely thin. Um, but the Bolsheviks also sought to eradicate religious faith among ordinary citizens. Uh, and all of this unfolded in various stages uh, that, uh, you know, is discussed uh, in more detail in the book, um, but very quickly came to repressive measures, especially against the church hierarchy in the revolutionary years and through the 1920s. Uh, and then by the 1930s, simply erupted into kind of massive repressive measures, not only against all of the clergy, not just the hierarchy, but even ordinary believers. And this culminated really in the in the Great Terror of 1937-1938, uh, which um, few people realize that, uh, that religious believers uh, and activists were actually a specific target of the terror. And in the, in the book, I quote this one, a report from Yezhov, who was the head of the um, the secret police, uh, which uh, he sent to Stalin uh, in 19- November 1937, in which he reported that in just four months of the terror, they had arrested over 30,000 church people and sectarians, he calls them. So 166 bishops, over 9,000 priests, over 2,000 monks, and almost 20,000 uh, what he calls activist believers, so non-clergy, but just believers, uh, and sectarians. He sort of lumps those as one group. And that of those, half of the clergy had already been executed, the other half being sent to the gulag, of course, uh, and that one-third of the ordinary believers had also been executed. So it's the the level of the persecution during the terror, especially uh, is um, colossal, right? And the damage against the church um, was colossal. Then, of course, during World War II, uh, there's this complete reversal of policy and the anti-religious campaign and propaganda simply ceases as there's this sense that the entire society needs to unite and mobilize against the, the Nazis. And then what develops in the later Soviet period, especially uh, after Khrushchev renews the anti-religious campaigns in the late 1950s and early 1960s, 
which found expression primarily in terms of closure of churches and monasteries and seminaries. So they weren't uh, shooting people anymore under Khrushchev uh, or sending nearly so many to the gulag, but there was still this this anti-religious campaign, which people don't <clears throat> often realize. We usually think of uh, Khrushchev as the reformer who was uh, engaged in de-Stalinization, but not in the religious sphere. Um, and so what emerges in the late Soviet period is this kind of, strict control over the church that the Soviets uh, exercised. So religious life persisted at some kind of uh, very limited uh, level. But this idea that, you know, the clergy were simply KGB and Cassocks on the one hand is one stereotype, or the other more nuanced one tends to emphasize the the compromised hierarchy, but the heroic individual dissidents, like somebody like Father Yakunin or something like this, either one of those pictures doesn't uh, capture the entire uh, complexity of what happened in the in the late Soviet period. Um, you know, there was this um, film Chuda, uh, the miracle about this kind of story, uh, which apparently has some truth to it, uh, but I won't go into that, about the, a young woman who was blasphemously dancing with a, uh, an icon and then basically gets frozen and so on. Anyways, the, the point I want to make is that the, um, you know, this, there was talk about this, the rumors were spreading and so on. And in the film, the, um, the local uh, Soviet uh, you know, authority comes to the priest and he says, either you denounce this miracle from the pulpit or I'm going to close the parish church, All right? So very often, religious, you know, priests and believers were were put into positions where they were forced to make decisions where neither decision was good, right? It wasn't a black and white, like either you are compromising with the Soviets or you're a heroic dissident. No, either of those decisions were bad, right? Uh, from, you know, from the priest's vantage point, you could say. Uh, so the story of the late Soviet period and how people managed or attempted to adapt their faith is one that really is only beginning to be told and is much more complex than we realize. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. Alex, yeah? yeah uh, well, overall, overall, that was really, uh, really a, a, a period of different, fantastic different strategies. Uh, uh, there was the strategy to, of survival, well, just the finding kind of modus vivendi of different different kinds, like uh, you know, from the catacomb underground church to uh, to uh, to some uh, some small niches that uh, existed that still existed, or uh, downgrading the the whole faith, the whole orthodoxy to some kind of uh, uh, elementary practices. Uh, at, in uh, in in the villages or or, or cities uh, by people who were trying to keep the tradition uh, just on the level of kind of uh, well uh, uh, kind of folk tradition uh, that existed, uh, but at the same time the uh, the search for a kind of acceptable compromise, acceptable compromise with uh, with uh, uh, with the power with the authorities. Whose idea was uh, to eradicate the church, and the final, uh, uh, the, the 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 final result was that this eradication didn't work. It was not it was not possible to eradicate because it's kind of a resilient 
tradition that religion is such a resilient thing that existed in different forms and survived in different forms. Although, although the Russian history during under the Soviet Union was a part of the general, you know, general, I would say, Western modern trend to secularization. So that's also a kind of a you know, perspective that we need to keep in mind. So it was it was the kind of a radical, most radical, most um, outrageous, uh, uh, avant-garde, so to speak, Soviet form of of secularization that we we had in Russia. But uh, uh, still, uh, what we have uh, uh, what we had after the end of the Soviet Union showed that. Uh, the final uh, the, the, the eradication or its uh, disappearance was uh, uh, an impossible goal to, to reach. Yeah, so let's actually talk about the, the post-Soviet period. So what was the impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union on the Russian Orthodox Church? Yeah, uh, uh, they were, I, I think that uh, 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 we can uh, we can talk uh, uh, about the two levels. One level is kind of uh, everyday uh, uh, religiosity. Uh, and uh, the second the second level is kind of a political arrangements arrangements that came about with uh, the end of the Soviet Union. On the, uh, on the level of uh, uh, everyday uh, per- personal uh, religiosity of many people, the end of the Soviet Union was... Uh, a time of uh, uh, really re- re- resurgent interest towards religion that actually started in the late uh, uh, late Soviet time, as Scott, as Scott mentioned, uh, there were the uh, anti-Soviet dissidents uh, with the very strong religious uh, religious component, so to speak, and uh, there were lots of uh, groups. Uh, uh, of, of this kind of dissident groups of this kind with uh, 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 with uh, some religious ideas that they sprung that uh, that actually evolved into this huge m- movement of 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 revival in um, uh, in the beginning of 1990s actually as the end of 1980s when with the perestroika and with with the changes changes uh, uh, towards uh, uh, liberalization of the Gorbachev so. Uh, that uh, the the, the uh, re, this religious revival that we call it uh, lasted for maybe uh, five or two, to ten years. Then it was it started to um, it started to uh, go slower, uh, uh, but uh, during this ten years or maybe maybe a little bit more, there was a huge number of uh, people with sincere faith who joined the church including the priests priesthood and uh, or, or or the lay communities as well so that was really the the, the time of the rediscovery of the tradition uh, 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 then uh, uh, speaking of the second level the 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 uh, as I said the political arrangements and the political the um, uh, uh, so to speak uh, Consequences of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Of course, the uh, uh, the first thing is the uh, split of the uh, Russian Orthodox tradition into a few national 
uh, national um, sub-traditions, if you say, if you, uh, if you want, uh, that uh, with uh, because of the uh, because of this kind of new uh, uh, national borders uh, uh, between the Russian Federation, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, uh, and uh, the Republic of Moldova, uh, and uh, uh, well, there was another Eastern Orthodox tradition on this former Soviet Un- uh, in, in the former Soviet Union that was Georgia, the Georgian. Church that uh, also belongs to this um, uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, but it was uh, separate from the uh, uh, from the earlier time. So after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, all these networks uh, were questioned, were uh, uh, challenged because of the national projects in uh, each of these countries. Well, the Russian Federation continued to be a kind of a uh, mm, uh, li- uh, continued to live with a kind of a memory of the imperial uh, uh, influence uh, and power, but uh, Ukraine and Belarus and Moldova, um, uh, where the uh, uh, Russian Orthodoxy existed uh, uh, in in terms of ecclesiastical uh, administration, uh, started to um, uh, uh, to be challenged by this kind of national. Uh, uh, separation, and uh, we know that the uh, the, the the results uh, uh, the, the one result in the very beginning of the uh, uh, post-Soviet period in the 1990s uh, was the uh, split within um, uh, within the, uh, the the Moldovan Church uh, in Church in Moldova. The part of the church uh, uh, was uh, joined the another ecclesiastical tradition of the uh, the the Constantinople uh, Patriarchy. Uh, the same uh, episode was uh, in uh, in Estonia when the Russian Orthodox tradition split into two, um, uh, and uh, also a part of it uh, uh, joined uh, Constantinople. And uh, then uh, uh, we have uh, this huge uh, problem and huge uh, uh, kind of. Uh, uh, change uh, the the last few years uh, with the development of uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, autocephalous church that was uh, established in uh, twenty eighteen uh, three years ago actually uh, and uh, uh, that posed a huge uh, problems and conflicts within <coughs> Eastern Orthodox communities in general. Maybe Scott want to. Um, to add something. No, no. Okay. Um, so the focus of your book is, is obviously Russian Orthodoxy, but you also talk a little bit about um, other denominations. Um, so could you talk just briefly about um, the relationship between Russian Orthodoxy and other denominations and how non-Orthodox Christianity is generally perceived in Russian society? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, I can start. And uh, um, uh, well, uh, 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 as I as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, 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 there is uh, 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 this kind of duality in the Russian Orthodox tradition in terms of uh, its uh, mm, uh, mm, its political history and its history of the involvement uh, with uh, um, uh, with the societies and polities. Uh, uh, the, the the Russian Church is both national uh, Russian. Uh, project, so to say, but at the same time, it's uh, it's a kind of imperial church that is 
are uh, uh, exposed to um, um, many uh, to the impact and negotiation, the the uh, the, the, the negotiations and communications with other uh, denominations. Uh, with uh, uh, both Christian and non-Christian religions, by the way, so we don't, uh, uh, we should not forget the uh, the non-Christian um, uh, religions like Islam, which is the second largest Islam in Russia, uh, uh, religion in Russia, in uh, uh, in in terms of adherence and belonging, and also the Buddhist and uh, and um, there have been. Uh, long uh, relationships with uh, other Christian denominations, the Catholic and the Protestants, uh, 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 at least from uh, from the time of Peter the Great uh, in the uh, early uh, 18th century. Uh, so um, uh, uh, now the Russian Orthodox Church uh, 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 is very much involved in the in the, in the kind of a political. Uh, uh, processes in in Russia, it's uh, it's it, it is considered as a uh, kind of it's uh, well, uh, in spite of the uh, uh, existing uh, norm of separation of church and state, uh, the Russian the Russian churches, Orthodox churches, of course, uh, consider it uh, de facto uh, dominant and uh, uh, national church. At the same time. Uh, there is the uh, uh, the group of so-called traditional religions, uh, uh, what I mentioned, uh, Islam and uh, and uh, Buddhism and Judaism, the traditional Russian uh, religions of the Russian of the Russian Empire, that form a kind of a special group that uh, is distinguished from all the rest. But uh, also the uh, the traditions of Protestant, uh, the Protestant Catholics, as I said, uh, since uh, since a few centuries, uh, are present uh, here in, uh, as well. And uh, uh, although although there is a kind of a, uh, a strange relationship within with uh, with other Christian denominations, because. Uh, uh, in uh, in the uh, 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 in the laws that uh, are now regulating uh, uh, the uh, religious pluralism and religious freedom in Russia, uh, uh, there is definitely uh, a mention of the of Russian Orthodoxy as the leading religion, and also the traditional religions are mentioned. Uh, uh, those three that I mentioned. Uh, but uh, uh, traditional Christianities, other Christianities like the Catholics and Protestants, are not specified. So there is a kind of a uh, ambiguity in terms of relationship with them. Um, uh, 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 there, uh, there are uh, uh, some uh, uh, some uh, official. Uh, uh, Official commissions uh, under the uh, uh, executive powers that bring together all the uh, denominations uh, existing in Russia, and uh, 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 de- definitely Russian Orthodoxy and personally the Russian Patriarch play the leading role in uh, uh, arranging these kind of meetings that are not uh, very often, though, and not quite. Uh, uh, you know, 
uh, having really no uh, uh, much impact on uh, on uh, uh, real politics. So that's uh, kind of complex relationships, um, uh, and uh, yeah, that's maybe maybe Scott want to add something. Okay. Um, so let's kind of talk about what would you like to, to see be the key takeaways of your readers um, about from this book? Well, I think uh, perhaps the biggest thing is um, that uh, Russian Orthodoxy, Christianity in Russia and Russian Orthodoxy are very complex. And so when we see things like the patriarch making some kind of statements or something like this, we can't make assumptions that this characterizes what constitutes um, this tradition. Um, and uh, for example, you know, one of the, the kind of stereotypes, especially of the Russian Orthodox Church after Peter the Great's reforms, as if the church was completely subordinated to the state and became a department of state. I mean, you read this every book you pick up. Um, And of course, you know, the patriarchate was uh, abolished. Peter the Great created the Holy Synod, which was this kind of parallel system uh, for the church, parallel with the state. But, you know, my first book where I wrote a 500 page book about uh, monasticism in Russia and the the state didn't figure hardly at all in the story, except for the very beginning when Catherine the Great confiscated all the the. Uh, monastic estates, but the rest of the story, if you're talking about religion on the ground, the state doesn't really matter very much. So this kind of, to, to make these kind of generalizations about the church is just, uh, you know, subordinated to the state, um, hardly tells the whole story. And so many kind of cases um, like this, uh, where, where uh, understanding Russia and Russian, the history of Russian Orthodoxy and its contemporary manifestations is much more nuanced than one would pick up from uh, these kind of general statements. I would, I would only add that uh, what we were trying to do is a kind of a very concise and balanced, I hope it's balanced, uh, the, uh, knowledge on the role of Christianity, the, uh, the, the role Christianity played in Russian history, and play and continues to play now. So that's uh, uh, was the the idea to make it the, to make it really concise and really balanced, balanced in terms of giving some kind of general idea about both uh, the teaching practices, uh, the specifics, and uh, uh, and political in, involvement and historical uh, uh, narrative, they call historical narrative, and adding it up with uh, the, what's, what's going on now and what are kind of uh, contemporary, contemporary um, arrangements of, uh, of, of, of orthodoxy. So I hope that we did this in, in a relatively small, well, can we call it small or not not that much, but not not definitely not 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 the one that Scott made on the monasticism, <laughs> which is mu- much more much more uh, detailed and documented. But this one, uh, uh, the the idea was different. The idea was really to present it in a very con- concise way, but also to uh, uh, but also to refer and to uh, to refer to all the. Uh, 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 
research and the studies that have been done. And so we have uh, this additional uh, bibliography uh, that uh, we hope uh, will help uh, the readers to go further um, uh, to develop their knowledge. Uh, in uh, different uh, in, uh, in different aspects of the book. Uh, and do you envision this as a teaching resource? Yeah, very much. I mean, I teach both uh, classes here at Miami University to uh, kind of introduction to world Christianity and also introduction to Russian studies. And I kind of in I had my students in mind as I was writing the book, right, of, of trying to explain things in a way that would be accessible for them. And I will certainly use it, especially in my Russian studies books, uh, Russian studies classes. Um, and the way the book is structured is that there's an, in, you know, the first, the chapters for the most part can be used separately. So the You know, if you want to understand what is orthodoxy in general and what is Russian orthodoxy, you know, you can just read chapter one. If you're if you're, let's say, teaching a history class and you either yourself or you want your students to uh, to understand kind of the scope of the history of the Russian Orthodox Church and Russian Christianity, uh, that's chapter three and also chapter four. If you're interested, like in modern Russian religious thoughts. Uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, that's chapter five. If you're interested in kind of politics and society since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, that's chapter six. So each chapter can be, even though they build on each other, they can also be used separately um, for, let's say, people who are teaching either Russian politics or Russian culture uh, or Russian history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is certainly a resource that I wish I'd had when I uh, taught a seminar, Introduction to Russian Orthodoxy, because the other books I found were either too specific or too academic or scholarly um, or just kind of too too expansive, right? So I think this is really the the perfect kind of filling to that gap. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for listening to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I've been speaking with Dr. Scott Kenworthy, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Comparative Religion at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and Dr. Alexander Aganjanian, Professor at the Center for the Study of Religion at Russian State University of Humanities in Moscow. And we've been discussing their 2021 book, Understanding World Christianity Russia, which is currently available from Fortress Press. Drs. Kenworthy and Agajanian, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.